Hi, everyone, and welcome to episode 128 of the Tick Bootcamp podcast. The title of today's interview is The Shark Tank, an interview with Emily Strauss. My name is Richard Johansson. And I'm Matt Sabatello. Matt, the Shark Tank discovered Emily Strauss, and they briefly told her Lyme disease story as part of their episode. But we knew there was much more to the story than had been portrayed on Shark Tank, and we decided to interview Emily so that we could tell the larger story. And we found that it was a really cool story. Um, you know, her mom, uh, who was a medical professional, reached out to Pamela Weintraub, one of the stars in the Lyme community and the author of Cure Unknown. Which I think one of the most disturbing parts about Emily's Lyme journey is that her mom was a medical professional, and despite that, she still had to seek help from the Lyme community through the author Pamela Weintraub to get proper treatment through a Lyme literate doctor. But Matt, the cool part of this story, at least for me, is that this young entrepreneur had a business at the time that she was diagnosed with her illness, and the business changed and was altered as a consequence of her Lyme journey for the better. And as a result of these changes to her business, it became so successful that it was featured on Shark Tank. So Matt, I'd like to introduce to our community, Emily Strauss. Hey, Emily Strauss, and welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much. Well, we're really blessed to have you today. So Emily, can you tell us where you live? I am from Bayside, Queens, currently living in Hoboken, New Jersey. All right. So we have a fellow New Yorker, so we really should send out a trigger alert to all of the folks who are listening to this podcast, because they're now going to hear three New Yorkers butcher the English language while we talk about um, Lyme disease and tick. So um, how long did you live in uh, Bayside, Queens, before you moved to Hoboken, New Jersey? Uh, about 19 years. And <clears throat> Emily, what are you currently doing for work? I own a company, um, Mural Painter Inc. We specialize in hand paints and murals and hand painted signage. And how long have you been the owner of this uh, mural painting company? Actually, since I was 17, uh, so almost going on 12 years now. Now, you've had some interesting twists and turns in this business that you have. I understand you were on Shark Tank at one point. Yeah, it, uh, it actually just passed. I was on uh, last season, season 11. Uh, we aired on May 1st. And how was that experience on Shark Tank? Oh, boy. <laughs> Scary, but awesome. I mean, it's definitely a once-in-a-lifetime experience. It's, it's like, going to stay with me the rest of my life. So let's talk about some of the things that are staying with you for the rest of your life, like your tick disease journey. When did you first uh, start seeing the symptoms of your tick disease? When I was 16, 17 years old. Now, before you started to see the symptoms of your tick disease, what did you know about ticks and Lyme disease? We went over it um, like in science class in elementary school and, you know, it was just check for ticks and if you see a rash, uh, take 30 days of antibiotics um, orally and that's it. That's all we knew. So you knew all of that from your classes in, um, in Bayside, Queens? Yes. That's interesting yeah. to hear that uh, you folks in uh, New York City were getting uh, educational information on ticks and Lyme disease and we in, in uh, uh, Long Island and most of New York weren't, so that's really cool that you had some information about ticks and Lyme disease. She went over it just once in passing, you know. Okay, so let's talk about uh, let's talk about what you were doing just before you started to show your sense of being. What kinds of things were you working on? What were you dreaming about? And what were you pursuing um, in your life when you first started to see the symptoms of your tick disease? Well, it sucked because I was like first, quote unquote, finding myself since I was a teenager. Um, I just transferred schools and the first school wasn't working out. High school just kicked my ass. This one was just a smaller, more private school. Um, but I was the new girl started in the middle of March. It was awkward, but, um, but I made like a really great group of friends and I joined all these extra activities and I started, you know, coming into my shell and I started the company and um, it actually exploded. It was, it was just me, you know, a little high schooler charging barely anything, um, going door to door painting, you know, neighborhoods. And it was like a little word to mouth business around Long Island. Um, but that, that's exactly at 17 when it really started taking off. And that's exactly when I got sick. So unfortunate timing. It was, it was at my prime as a teenager. So talk about how your symptoms developed and how it was interfering with this new business that you were beginning at the age of 17. Um, I mean, it was really strange. I was, I was fine. I was carrying ladders around. I was in school. I was doing this, that, and everything. And then I got some headaches here and there, but I didn't think anything of it. And, um, and then one day I went to school and um, at lunch, I passed out and I had like, a, I guess, a seizure. 
And ever since that day, like I, I couldn't walk. It was just like spiral from like zero to 90 out of nowhere. It was so really talk, strange. So I mean, let's talk about this business you started. You started a mural painting business? Yes. And what did that require you to do? Meaning were you painting uh, large um, murals on walls? And what were you doing? Yeah. I mean, in the beginning, it was more smaller scale, like um, nursery rooms, people's living rooms, people's bathrooms, um, you know, stuff like that. But, you know, it was pretty physical. We had to bring all the supplies to the job sites and ladders and stand on your feet for hours a day painting. And you were able to do that for some period of time when you started this business and then you started to get sick. So talk about how your symptoms were developing and how this event that resulted in you having a seizure impacted this developing business. Uh, could you elaborate on that? Yeah, so, you, so you, you were able to go to different people's houses and you were able to you know, paint these murals and now you started to get sick. Was your illness preventing you from getting more work and doing the work that you were getting? Yeah, I mean, it was to the point where I couldn't even pick up like a paintbrush. I couldn't do anything. Uh, my parents had to bring me food to my door. I was completely bedridden. So it came to a complete halt. So how did you go from uh, being an active gal who was clearly precocious and starting her own business and, and getting adults to pay you money to do work at their house to now being bedbound? How long did that take? And what was it like from the, from the standpoint of the progression of your symptoms? The, I mean, how it was like is strange. You would think if somebody, if that happened to them, you know, at the very peak of their, I guess, life, it's, uh, you would think you'd be devastated and depressed, but I was just so out of it that it was like just going through the motions. Like, I remember the day my mom knocked on the door and said, like, listen, you missed too many days of school. I called the school. You're just not going to graduate. You're going to have to get a GED at some point. And my reaction was just like, okay, sure, fine. I just want to go back to bed. It was, it was strange. It was like me, but not me. It was just a zombie of myself. Um, and then as uh, symptoms progressing, it's, yeah, it, it was from zero to 90. But then after that, every day was like a new symptom. All of a sudden, uh, we'd be at the neurologist's office and all of a sudden we'd be at a cardiac uh, um, appointment because I would have palpitations. And every day was a new symptom for maybe like a year. So you, you were 17 years old at the time that this was all happening. And you said it went from zero to 90. So that meant you went from no symptoms to seizure in a very short period of time? Correct. Like I said, a couple of headaches here and there, but um, I mean, nothing crazy. So your mom and dad, I'm assuming, were, were getting more concerned about first your seizure and then the other symptoms that were developing. Were they taking you to doctors? Yes. So, you know, we, we went to the doctor immediately. We went to the hospital and they said it was too late to do any sort of scan to see if it was a seizure because it wouldn't show up because too much time passed. They sent us home and said, you know, just monitor her. And I stayed in bed for a week and um, didn't see any doctors, just kind of saw if like maybe it was a flu or something. And uh, then I came down the stairs and I, I guess I passed out a little. I fell down the stairs and um, my mom is a personal trainer. So she... Um, she was seeing a client who was like, oh, her gym is in her basement. That's probably an important factor. Uh, so I was going down the stairs and they were coming up from the basement. The session was over and the client that she was training is a nurse and just took one look at me and said, oh my God, you have to take her to the hospital now. Um, and, then, and then I did. And that's when I started getting blood work done. And that's, uh, that's, when, that's when they started taking it more seriously, I guess. Emily, do you recall a kick bite or any sort of rash that would resemble a bullseye rash looking back now that you may have had earlier when you were a child? I did. Uh, in the fourth grade, um, I had a, a bullseye rash. It was round. It was on my knee. It, was, um, it looked exactly like it, but um, everybody said it was ringworm. We went to the doctor, the school nurse, um, and we treated it like ringworm, and we never thought anything of it until years later. So... Um, because it went from like no symptoms to severe symptoms, they're, uh, they're starting to think that maybe that was Lyme disease and it just kind of laid in my body and uh, maybe showed like some mild symptoms and then it came out and manifested into really, really bad symptoms out of nowhere. 
Emily, many people that we've interviewed have had some sort of trigger or, you know, traumatic event in their life that has caused their Lyme to take over and make them really sick. So is there something that happened when you were 17, either physically or emotionally, that you think could have caused Lyme to take over and make you get this sick that quick, since you may have gotten bitten when you were much younger from that, that rash, which you now believe to be a bullseye rash? I don't think so. I mean, I went through a lot as a kid, but that was that was the happiest I've been. I had a boyfriend and I was drawing all these activities and I had my business. I mean, maybe if anything, I was overexerting myself, you know, working and going to school. But um, but I can't think back of anything. The only thing I could think of is um, every time I got a vaccine, I would get like the reaction that they say like nobody gets. Um, but it, it wasn't like pinpointed to like that month that it happens, you know? Right, and certainly a lot of stress, a lack of sleep, you're running a business, you're in school, and now you're having an adverse reaction to a lot of these vaccines, which could have been a reaction potentially that you were reacting poorly because you had Lyme in your system. Yeah. Do you think that maybe this was just a boiling point or the pot, the pot boiling over effect that many people describe with Lyme disease? Yeah, it could have been that, or it could have been, you know, your body, especially as a woman, just changes a lot at the age of 16 and 17. Um, so maybe that's, that's how it came out. Um, I mean, we'll never know for sure, but like I said, nothing traumatic happens necessarily. So Emily, talk to us more about the first time you were in the hospital when you had the seizure, and they said they couldn't really tell because it was over and they sent you home. They didn't run any blood work or no. do any sort of testing at that point? They just sent you home the first time? No, they, I, I wasn't even in a gown or anything. We were, uh, we were in the waiting room and then we just spoke to somebody like in the, the triage area and that was it. So no MRI, no blood work, no Nothing. CAT scan, no examination. Wow. No, they, they said it could be teenage angst or my body changing or a migraine or um, I passed out and it looked like a seizure because sometimes you twitch. And there's nothing. Yeah, I didn't eat my lunch, like, you know, my blood pressure went down, like things like that, they said, because I'm skinny. Yeah, this is just really unbelievable. And we've heard from many other young females who have told us that they believe their gender has played a role into their illness being dismissed. Do you think the fact that you were a young, healthy female maybe contributed to the fact that they dismissed you at the hospital? Absolutely. I mean, then and even after like the series of testing, um, we got that feedback a lot from neurologists, from this specialist, from that specialist saying, you know, privately to my mom, like, she's a teenager, teenage angst, the girls go through a lot, you know, they, she, they want uh, attention and everything of the sorts. So why do you think when you went back to the hospital, after you fainted walking down the stairs, that the doctors there at the ER took you more seriously than the first time you went after the seizure? I mean, at that point, I wasn't my giggly self. I was, you know, I couldn't even like walk into the hospital. I had to like have my mom hold on to me. Um, so maybe that's why they took it a little more seriously. Um, I had dark circles around my eyes. I mean, I just looked bad and I was in bed for five days previous to that. So my mom was a little bit more hysterical, um, you know, pushing the doctors. And she has a medical background too, which really did help quite a bit. She knew like what questions to ask and um, how to get attention from the doctors. <laughs> Do you, do you think that, um, Emily, do you think that if your mother wasn't there with you and advocating for you and pushing for you, that they would have even ran any tests the second time at the hospital? It's very possible they wouldn't. We waited for like 10 hours just to get a blood test, you know? They would have just forgotten about me, probably. And how long were you in the hospital for at this point? So you passed out, you're back at the hospital again in a very short period of time. They run some blood work. Do they do any other tests? Uh, they, they wrote a script to follow up with a neurologist for an MRI. They couldn't do it that day. Uh, but no, that was it. It was 12 hours in the hospital of IV fluids and just waiting on somebody to give me a blood test. Did they have the on-call <laughs> neurologist come in to evaluate you at the hospital? I don't remember. It's very possible they did, yes. So talk to us now. You, you're, you're in and out pretty much same day, the second time at the hospital. You're going to follow up with the neurologist, but then you happen to get your, your, blood, your blood work results and your mother's going through them. So walk us through what happens next after this hospital visit. Okay, so we got a script to see a neurologist. And maybe two weeks later, um, we went and um, it was a really long wait. And um, my mom, I guess she was just bored and she started uh, opening like the folder of things that she was collecting, some information about my symptoms. And in there was a copy of the blood test that we got from the hospital. But when we got them, 
we were told that, oh, everything's normal and just follow up. So she didn't question it. She didn't even look at it. She just folded it and put it in her, uh, in her folder. But then she, she looked at it and it said Lyme disease positive in huge bold letters. So when we finally went into the neurologist's office, she goes, what the hell is this? They told us everything was fine in the ER and this is saying this. And uh, the neurologist said, oh, the ER doctors probably didn't want to worry you. It always says positive, but it's, it's false positives. And that can't possibly be what's wrong with her. And yet you're from New York, one of the areas where Lyme disease is just running rampant, and they don't even consider that you, you tested positive on the ELISA portion of the test. They totally dismiss it and don't even tell you. Your mom had to find out by looking through your blood work. Exactly. And if she never asked for a copy of the blood test, because oftentimes they don't even give it to you, we never, ever would have known. So you clearly had the symptoms of neurological Lyme disease. You were fainting, you were having seizures, you had cognitive impairments, you were having trouble with your memory. What other symptoms were you having at that time that could have been correlated to Lyme that the doctors just totally missed a boat on? My eyes were completely black. My joints were all swollen, like really swollen. I look back at pictures and like my ankle had like three rolls on it. Um, I was just in a lot of pain, a lot of migraines. Migraines was a big one. That actually kind of subsided over the years, but that was a huge one at that time um, where I couldn't look at the light. I was just in like dark rooms for days on end. Um, but yeah, more the neurological stuff was like a big factor. I went from like being a straight A student to not being able to read properly. Um, and nobody, nobody cared. Nobody even like talked about that at the doctor's offices. And we've heard all of these symptoms from so many other guests that we've interviewed, and yet nobody thought Lyme, your mom thought it. So now you're, you're with your neurologist, and your neurologist is defending the ER doctor by saying, oh, everybody tests positive to the Lisa. It's just probably a false positive. Did he then follow up with the Western blot test to see if you actually had Lyme disease, or did your mom have to push him and, and be a little aggressive to get you further testing? No, she didn't do anything except tell us that it's teenage angst. Um, that's all she said. And then um, my mom went home and did some research and because she has the medical background was reading that there's a Western blot test, which is a little bit more, um, you know, sensitive. And um, so she called my uh, pediatrician who knows nothing about this and just said, please help us just write a script for us to get this blood test. So we went in and got another blood test just for that. It came back and all the bands were lit, in, lit up, but um but my pediatrician had no idea how to read it. So together, we all just sat on the computer and we're looking up like which band means this and which band means that. And we kind of diagnosed ourselves, like we diagnosed it ourselves. So I have to say, I, looking, looking at your story and listening to what you're telling us, it seems like if it weren't for your mother, you would have had a much longer diagnostic period than you actually had. Would you agree? Absolutely. My mother, and I don't know if you're familiar with her, but uh, Pamela Weintraub as well. Uh, she wrote uh, Cure Unknown, the book. Yes. So it was, was that a friend of your mother's or is that just uh, somebody that influenced your mom by reading her book? It was somebody who influenced my mom. So um, after she you know, was my number one advocate and did everything she can to get me the help I needed, it just wasn't working at all. Nobody was giving us the right medication. They, uh, they said I had a sinus infection and gave me antibiotics that we later figured out is like not meant for sinus infections. It's for Lyme disease. So the doctors were like, you know, didn't want to lose their medical license. We were just sort of learning about that whole side of everything and writing weird scripts like to like treat me under the books, but then they never answered their phones. It was a mess. And so she just wrote a letter to Pamela Weintraub, just like help an email actually thinking that she'll get no response. And she did. And she was like very, very helpful and pointed us in the direction of Lyme literate doctors that we knew nothing about at the time and gave us the names and numbers of everybody. And that's when uh, we finally got like in the right hands of a Lyme literate specialist to get, you know, more aggressive treatments and blood tests and proper diagnosing. I just want to focus more on something you said there, Emily, that you were diagnosed with a sinus infection, yet your doctors prescribed you with antibiotics used to treat Lyme, not for a sinus infection. And looking back, you now believe that your doctors were doing this to protect themselves from lawsuits for treating Lyme disease. It had to be the case because after it wasn't the MRI, it was the CAT scan. They, uh, they didn't show us the results. They refused to, but they said, oh my God, she has like the most severe sinus infection up there and we have to use very high antibiotics to get it to the brain. And that's, that's, the, that's what's happening. It's not Lyme disease. Um, but it was, it was so 
inaccurate to what we were researching, my mother and uh, her doctor friends and just everybody, like all of her colleagues, because she is in the medical field. Um, but it was, it was accurate for like late stage Lyme disease when we were learning more about that. So that's our conclusion. We, we think that that was actually a good doctor that just was wink winking us. And you're not alone in that. We've had many past podcast guests who have told us they can't even tell us their doctor's names who saved their lives because these doctors wouldn't let them out of fear that people would hear the podcast and then attack them and go after their license. So walk us through now. You, you're at your primary care doctor who really couldn't even read the results of the Western blot test. Together, you, your mom, and your doctor realize, wow, this is another positive Lyme test. Do you now treat with your primary care physician or do you seek an another doctor to properly treat you for your Lyme disease? No, I mean, he was a pediatrician. Unfortunately, he did pass away. But um, it, we, we were able to um, move after the, um, the neurologist who gave us the sinus infection medication. We didn't know anything about Herxheimer reactions. That was all new. So we thought I was just getting worse and worse and worse. But it was really the antibiotics working. And then um, after my mom's cry for help email, we got the uh, information from the um, Lyme literate doctors. And then we started seeing uh, Kenneth Ligner. Yes. And yeah. yeah. And so he's, yeah, so go ahead. So looking back, do you th is this the same neurologist that told you it was just teenage angst that then ran the, the CAT scan to determine that you had these sinus problems? Or was it another neurologist? It was another one. I don't know what his specialty was. I think he was an EMT maybe because I had so much like facial uh side effects i, I don't remember it was so long ago we searched so many doctors <laughs> and that totally understandable i mean you end up seeing countless doctors you can't even remember yeah. by the time you're you're finally you know through the lyme disease so again i just can't help but think that if it weren't for your mom and your drive to fight and finding the proper connections in the Lyme world on the internet and reading the books and the literature and then finding a Lyme literate doctor, you may have never gotten proper treatment for Lyme disease. No, I wouldn't have. And it was just so shocking. I mean, it was a complete underground world. Like reading all this, we thought like, oh, it's just another, you know, little disease. And we were actually so happy when we found out that it was Lyme because we thought, oh, I'll just take antibiotics. It'll be great. At least it's not cancer or something like really, really bad or MS. And then we just started researching and researching and it was like, oh my God, like what kind of world are we entering and what kind of journey ahead? But we would have never known any of that information if it wasn't for my mom staying up all night, just self-researching everything. So now you're at your second neurologist. They run, they perform this scan. They identify that you have quote unquote sinus problems, which we now believed that they kind of knew it was Lyme at the time. They give you, was it, was it IV antibiotics or oral antibiotics at this point for the sinus infection? It was uh, oral. Oral but antibiotics. It was, it was like uh, 8,000 milligrams of amoxicillin two times a day. It was like insane. Something crazy like that. And, and you mentioned that you started to have an immediate Herxheimer reaction. When you reported this back to your neurologist, what was the feedback from your doctor at that time? Oh, he fell off the face of the earth. Like there was no talking to him. That's why my mom ended up like, emailing Pamela Weintraub saying like, I hope you answer this help. And that's how we found Kenneth Lickner, which was a three month waiting list just to get in. So for three months, I was just like spiraling, spiraling without any doctor at all. So Emily, did you stay on the oral antibiotics, even though your neurologist wasn't really responding to you? Or did you stop the antibiotics and then wait to get in with Dr. Lickner? Uh, we took the whole course, but um, no refills or anything like that. So there was, there was a time period while we were waiting of just no medication at all. Do you recall how long the antibiotics were prescribed for? So how long you were on these, these high dose oral antibiotics, the amoxicillin? I think it was just for 30 days. It was so long ago, but I'm pretty sure. So now talk to us what it was like finally getting in to see Dr. Liegner and compare that to your experience with other doctors, your primary care physician, your pediatrician, the first neurologist who told you you had teenage angst, and now your second neurologist who pretty much ghosted you because he didn't want to help you. And now you're finally seeing a Lyme later doctor. How is this visit different than every other visit you've ever had? It was an eye opener how uh, corrupt the whole you know, problem with Lyme disease and the doctors really was. I mean, we were just reading about it and we knew nothing about it before this experience. And then seeing it firsthand, I mean, we had to drive five hours in the middle of nowhere. And it was like, make a right, make a left into the woods. And there was a house and it was like the back door of the house. And it really like, uh, was like the big wake up call of, oh my God, like what is happening over here? Like, why is this one disease like so crazy to treat that these doctors are literally in hiding? Um, 
was also expensive. That was a difference between uh, him and other doctors. Uh, that, that was really rough on my family, you know, having to pay so out of pocket for the right treatment. Um, but his approach, you know, he was talked about the uh, co-infections that nobody talked about. He talked about what to expect and the Herxheimer's and, you know, the road ahead of me, which nobody really talked about, uh, putting things in perspective. And I'm the type of person, even as a kid, um, I like to be in control. I, I like to be given just the bad news and know what to expect. I don't like surprises. I don't like, you know, not the unknown. Um, so he was, he was a perfect doctor for me. And he ran a lot more tests and confirmed it was a lot, like big Lyme disease. He did, uh, I forgot what it was, but um, I guess I, IgM and IgG, where he saw like the numbers, like high is like 1.9, I think, or something like that. And mine was like in the eight eights or something like that. It was like, he was able to measure like how severe it was. Nobody was able to do that. And he did all the co-infection tests and I came back with Babesia and Ehrlichia and a couple of other ones. So now that you, you finally have this diagnosis, definitive diagnosis of Lyme and Babesia, what was the treatment plan prescribed by Dr. Liegner at this point? He didn't do IV antibiotics right away. He did um, like a cocktail, like three different types of antibiotics and he pulsed them and he did Metpron and he did like some supplemental support. Um, and I did that for actually two years. So talk to us about your Herxheimer reaction you experienced when on the antibiotics from your second neurologist versus now you're on this cocktail of antibiotics and supplements from your Lyme litter doctor. Did you experience a Herxheimer reaction from this new cocktail of medication? And if yeah. so, how was it compared to your first Herxheimer reaction? It was the same or even worse. Um, they were, they were bad, but um, I guess I got used to it. <laughs> um, so many, many people do experience Herx reactions when treating Lyme. So what, what did your Lyme litter doctor prescribe or have you do that actually helped? So you can provide this as a tip to the people that are listening that they can use these tools and tips to help themselves when they're experiencing a, Herx, experiencing a Herxheimer reaction. So she started pulsing. Actually, at first, that wasn't part of the plan. It was just take it every day. But when they saw how much, you know, havoc it caused on my body and how much I was suffering, they started doing like four days of the antibiotics and three days off, four days and three days off. Um, and that, that helped a little bit. Um, it, was, it was 10 years ago. So please forgive me if I don't remember like exact details. Were there any detox tools or protocols that you can recall that you were told to do to help with your herxing? Yeah, there was some vitamins and supplemental support that was supposed to help. But again, I don't remember the exact names of them. They were cocktails that were like called like Limex and like funny names like that. <laughs> I, I really don't remember. And I'm so sorry, because I, I know it would potentially help somebody else. Now walk us through this two year window. You're, you're on this cocktail for two years. Does the herxing calm down? Do you start to feel better? And at what point is that in this two-year window? Um, it's, it started to plateau. And at the two-year mark, you know, I, I was old enough then. I was, uh, like, fast forward, I was already 19. I had, you know, thoughts and opinions of my own. I was an adult. And I told them, you know, like, I'm at a point where I'm not perfect. I'm not cured. But I can live with this. I'm okay. And I don't want to keep pumping toxins in my body. I mean, I don't know what happened to me having antibiotics and all these hardcore medications in me for two years. Um, and I didn't want to keep doing it. So I took myself off with their blessing. Um, they said it maybe wouldn't be their choice, but they understand and we'll just keep monitoring it. And, um, and I did, and, and I was okay. I went off medication for about a year and a half and I started living a normal life. I started feeling better because I didn't have side effects from all the medication, but you know, I, stayed plateaued. I stayed where I was when I went off the medication, which definitely wasn't a hundred percent. It was maybe like a 40% uh, way of life. And now at this point, were you also continuing your business? And now you're 19, you're, you're out of high school. Are you, are you exploring a college education? Are you building your business? Where are you at with your life at this point when you're 19 and you're stopping your, your treatment? Yeah, I, um, while I was on treatment, I got my GED. And I mean, I was really sick. I remember like commuting to the classes with like house slippers on because my feet were too swollen to wear sneakers and like 
like falling asleep on the train there and but I did it I uh it was just like a way of distracting myself um so so I was ready to go to college already I got an exceptions sex <laughs> acceptance letter to FIT so I started classes right away there um but funny story about that is um so when I was 17 I kind of threw a website together with my uh, family friends he he's a web developer and he kind of did it for me for free um like very quickly during a barbecue party it was just a small website and we we abandoned it nothing you know we put it on the web and forgot about it and at 19 that's when like if you're familiar with Williamsburg uh, in Brooklyn and just all of these like trendy neighborhoods uh were gentrifying and um murals became like a very popular trendy thing to do like hand painted signs was like more desired than you know putting a vinyl and it just paralleled with um, the timing where I was kind of healthy and my website just being dormant for two years on the web. So Google started recognizing it as like a two-year-old business, like a more established business. So when people were searching mural painting, my website came up right away and my phone started like blowing up. So like fresh out of me, like kind of okay, but not really okay. I was getting calls like crazy. I was in school. Um, and I kind of used it as like a, a distraction, like, okay, like maybe if I work really, really hard and do this and I have something to live for, I could do like a mind over matter thing where I forget about all my symptoms. And it worked. It totally worked until I crashed and burned maybe a year later. So now you're 19, you're, you're in college, you're 40% recovered, so you're still not really perfectly healthy. And now your, your business is flourishing and you're, you're, going out and building all these, creating all these beautiful murals for people out in, in New York City, which of course had to wreak havoc on your joints and your body, yeah. knowing the symptoms of Lyme disease, right? Right. I wasn't okay, but it was a mind over matter thing. I, adrenaline is a drug, um, you know, in a sense of what it does to your body. And when I had adrenaline, like I got to get this deadline done. I got to do all these things for that moment of 10 hours. I didn't feel my symptoms until the minute I hit my bed and then it was just crying. Um, but again, the, I mean, I don't want to say blessing in disguise because nothing about this is a blessing, but it forced me to, you know, start delegating, which is something, you know, I'm a control freak. Like, what do you mean other people are going to paint my murals? But I realized, like, I can't do this myself. I have to accommodate for everything that my body is, you know, going through. So I, because I was already in college studying fine art, I met a lot of friends that were talented painters. So I started paying them, you know, to be my assistant and they would come on the job sites with me and paint and again, like, I don't know what would happen if I wasn't sick, if that would have happened anyway. But long story short, like, it forced me into being a boss, you know, like, because now I don't paint. And it's not because I'm not physically okay. It's because I'm running a, a, an actual company. Um, so that was, that was a stepping stone to take care of myself, but also like, you know, fast forward, like create and sculpt a business model. So I think, Emily, this is something about you that despite all of the negative that comes along with Lyme disease, you just focused on one of the positives that came out of your, your health experience. So we just want to give you a kudos that not many people can focus on the positives when they're going through hell. Um, so that, that's, a, that's something you should be proud about in your, in your journey. Thank you. But walk us through now. So here you are, now you're 20, right? You're a year in, you're in college, you're, you're, ki you're killing it with your business, and you, you mentioned you had a crash at this point. So what happened with this crash? You know, what additional symptoms started to develop again? And how did you have to change your life to adapt to this crash? It seems like it was the same symptoms all over again. It was just going back to square one. But what happened was um, I found, um, how do I say it? Oh, an integrative health doctor who I started seeing after I went on all these like hardcore medications because I wanted to put healthy things back in my body. So I started um, doing the IV um, vitamin C infusions and the Myers cocktail and um, a lot I was on like 17 different vitamins just trying to get myself you know stronger and healthy again and replenish myself probiotics and everything like that and this doctor that was his specialty but when I started like deteriorating he did a test and it just showed like Lyme disease Lyme disease is like really really bad um, and somehow I don't know how and I can't say his name he was able to order and knew enough about it, the, um, the, the pick line, and then later on the port, and the visiting nurse, and the IV antibiotics, which is very rare for a doctor who prescribes vitamins, but he, his background is um, 
uh, he was a ER doctor. So I guess somehow he, I was fortunate enough that he knew enough about it. He wasn't an ignorant doctor. And, and definitely that is rare. And especially navigating insurance and all the bureaucratic red tape to get a pick line put in and get IV antibiotics or schedule. It was scary. A, a home health aid and, and have that covered by insurance is just a massive undertaking. So yeah. And at sure 20 years old, we were like, what the hell's happening? And is this necessary? But we trusted him because, you know, I wasn't a hundred percent after, um, the oral antibiotics and uh, Pamela Weintraud and my mom stayed in touch. They became friends. And she says, if you have any opportunity to do the IV, like do it, it's a miracle that you'll find a doctor to prescribe it. So we went for it and it was hell on earth and it ruined my social life and it ruined, you know, who I was. I just felt more sick because I had these like tubes, you know, it was more physical. It wasn't as invisible. And uh, it, it, it was, it was tough, but actually that was the thing that worked the most. And I would recommend that to anybody to just bite the bullet and do it. It's intense, invasive, and horrible, but it knocked it out of me to a point where I could live an 80% functioning life. So Emily, you mentioned that you had to sort of become a manager and sub out your, your painting work because you just couldn't do it anymore at this point. Were you able to stay in college or did you have to drop out as well because your health deteriorated so much at this point? Somehow I stayed in college for a bit. I like told when I had the pick line, I, everybody, what happened? What happened? I had an ace bandage on. I told everybody I broke my arm, but <laughs> people started getting suspicious after the six month mark. <laughs> and, um, it was, it was really rough. Um, the school would call me and, you know, call my family and say she's just missing too many classes and she's never going to graduate. But I was just trying so hard to do a mind over matter and make myself feel semi-normal. Um, but I, it, at the end of the day, I, I didn't graduate. No, I got an associate's degree. So at the two-year mark, I had to drop out. I, I didn't make it to bachelor's. Well, uh, again, it, I just feel like you're being a little hard on yourself. The fact that you accomplished an associate's degree and a little bit further with a pick line in, with major herxing, with major neurological symptoms and dealing with Lyme, that is a major accomplishment. So you should Thank be you. very proud about that. I tried. <laughs> so now you're, you're on, you have this pick line and you mentioned now it extended beyond a six month window. So talk to us about when you first get the pick line in and you start getting these, this heavy, heavy duty IV antibiotics. What was that like? Was that a, an immediate Herxheimer reaction again? Yeah, the first month or so, like, I couldn't even text on the phone to people. I was just, like, completely gone of a person. Um, but then it actually wasn't too bad. It, um, I mean, of course, like, to an average person, it would be, like, hell on earth. I'm comparing it to, like, the worst Her Herxheimer's. Um, they, they started becoming a little bit more mild, actually, over time. I was, on the, I was on the antibiotics for two years, actually, like, another year and a half or so. So, so you, you went back down to about 20% of your health around this crash, I think you said. So at what point did your health start to pivot and go on the upwards path instead of the backwards path after getting the antibiotics and getting through the herxing? I think it was maybe like the year mark it started and then they kept me on it um, just an extra half a year just as like a, a preventative or see how how much I could get even more better because I was at like, you know, 70% or so, but I would take it. I'd be like, this is fine. This is enough. But they kept me on another six months. Um, and then when I went off, I was about 80% and I stayed like that. So you ended, you ended about when you were 22 and you were about 80% re uh, recovered with your health. Correct. And now at this point, this was about what, six years ago from today? Yeah about were you doing anything else to maintain your health were you taking any supplements any herbs any uh, anything to keep your body healthy and and not to experience a relapse at this point yeah i was doing the um the myers cocktail still so that doctor um would uh i guess sell it to us and uh we'd freeze it in the refrigerator and uh before my visiting nurse left she would infuse me in that like once a week or so and that definitely helped a lot it gave me energy again. It, it made the swelling go down. Um, I would recommend that to anybody. How long did you stay on these, these Myers cocktail IVs after you finished the IV antibiotics? Um, I think I, I still do it to this day. Not as often, maybe like um, once every couple of months or if money's, you know, an issue, I kind of use it as like, uh, you know, when I start relapsing or having a flare up, I'll go there before it gets really bad. And it kind of puts a band-aid on the symptoms for a bit. Um, but I, I still do it. 
you, you had your pick line removed after the two-year window with IV antibiotics, and then you would just have either the home visiting nurse or you'd go to, to the clinic and then get them ad administered via an IV at the clinic, it sounds like. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I have a port still, so they could administer it through there. Um, I never got it removed, but, but yeah. So you've had a port since, um, since yeah, the you were 20? The pickling got infected because I was still painting murals and doing things that I definitely wasn't supposed to be doing, not keeping it clean. <laughs> so they, they said enough of this and they went in and put it inside. At what point did that happen with the infected pick line? Was that when you were still on the antibiotics or when you were yeah. after the fact, when you were on the um, supplements? No, it was during. So you've, since then, you've pretty much just been on this IV cocktail as needed, and you've been able to maintain your health at 80% since you're 22 over the last six years? Yeah, I did have a relapse. Like, I mean, I still have like bad days, and I still have flare-ups that maybe would last a week where I'm limping around the house and, you know, where I'll, I'll pass out here and there. But I, you know, I, I live a normal life. I work, you know, eight hours a day. I cook dinner. I clean the house. I, I, I'm okay, you know, and I, I guess you get used to it. It's like the new normal, like being in pain but functioning is like like normal that's fine to us you know but maybe other people it would be sick um but i did get a relapse with um i got diagnosed with trigeminal neuralgia which um like i was actually hospitalized for five days because of it that was kind of recently so i had a year of like back and forth with that which really affected things um because they couldn't get the medication right and there were side effects from that um but they the, the theory with that because it's so rare is um, that having the neurological Lyme disease for so long just uh, made my nerves susceptible to developing this. And that, that's going to be a forever thing. And, and nerve issues are, are common, unfortunately, with neurological Lyme disease. But so when you, what, what, are you, what kind of medication were you prescribed or what sort of treatment were you prescribed for this, these nerve issues that you had uh, when you had this relapse? Um, we started with gabapentin. And I took it as needed until it just, I don't know, it just started, I had like a really bad episode and I just couldn't like maintain, like I couldn't get it like down. I started taking a lot of gabapentin and it just stopped working. So in the hospital, they just started like trying all kinds of new different things. And I forgot what the drugs were. I was like so dazed, but they were too much for my little body. Like I would sleep for days. I would be like dizzy. I would just feel like so drugged. Um, and they finally figured out Lyrica was like the best one for me where I kind of got used to the side effects, like uh, the side effects went away after my body adjusted. Um, and it, it does the job, you know, it, I take it every day as a preventative and a seizure preventative and I take it, I could double it up like if I'm having an episode with it. Um, and thank God they figured it out. But yeah, that one works the best for me anyway. So Emily, talk to us about the symptoms you're experiencing and how Lyrica has helped those symptoms. So people that are listening that may be experiencing issues with their nerves as a, re as a result of neurological Lyme, if they're looking for something to try with their, with their doctor, they could potentially look at Lyrica as an option for themselves based on your experience. So what were the symptoms that were most severe that now Lyrica has helped you overcome? Um, for trigeminal neuralgia, it was like literally getting zapped in the face. So it was like an electrical current that... Um, Anytime there was a sense of vibration, it would zap my eye and in my nose and in my mouth and in my cheek, um, in my head, and like to the point of like screaming almost. And some, it would just be like a little bit, like maybe 10 minutes it would last and then it would go away. But um, once it started manifesting and like getting very bad and out of control, it would be like days and days and days of it not letting up. Um, but then when I started taking the Lyrica, it went away, but it also helped, even the gabapentin, it helped with symptoms with my Lyme disease that I didn't think was like an emergency severe. I have to go on another medication for. I figured I could just, you know, live a life with it. But um, now I feel like so great. I'm like, oh my God, it's gone. And that helped with like um, the, the nerve pain that, you know, maybe some Lyme patients would experience in their legs and their, their feet and their toes and their, their hands. Um, so it took care of that too. And it's also a seizure preventative. So if any Lyme disease patients suffer from seizures, um, it definitely did the job. I haven't had one in like a year. So let's put this into perspective. When you give us an idea of, of one of your worst symptoms that you had when you're at your worst and something you're doing today that you never imagined you could be doing when you got sick. So your worst symptom and now something you're doing today that is something that is just inspirational that you never thought you could do from, with Lyme disease. 
uh, I guess my worst symptom is uh, like those those pain episodes. I don't know what to call them, but for those listening that went through this, you totally know what I'm talking about, where you're just like, your body's like convulsing, but you're awake and you're just like screaming and screaming in pain. And you just, it looks so dramatic, like out of a movie. And you just think, how could it possibly like be like this? Um, that was the worst. And now... I mean, I'm, I'm, I have a construction background, like I, I can put up drywall, I can run up and down job sites, staircases with, you know, buckets of supplies on my back, and you know, I'm very physical, and that's something that is the polar opposite of going through something like this, um, and I, I think I do that just to overcompensate for all the years that I couldn't pick up anything, like I'm going to the extreme, like just to prove it to myself that like I'm capable, I'm okay. So Emily, now that you've gotten to this part of your journey, looking back, were there ever times where you believed or your mind was telling you that you were not sick? Yes, yeah. And it was whenever I was doing physical work. So physical work was adrenaline to me. And that's the moments that I would forget about it because I was distracted. And I literally was like, full of adrenaline, like, let's do this, let's do this, let's do this. But the minute you stop, it goes away. But I don't mean just those brief moments where you were feeling better because you had the adrenaline or other feel-good chemicals running through your body. But was there ever a time you even doubted that you were sick at all? No, it's always there. Um, but even to this day, maybe not physical, but I forget I'm sick or I forget it's there. Maybe I had a doubt I was ever that sick when I'm at work, like, you know, even if I'm not physically working, I'm doing my eight hour day, Emily this, Emily that, running the phone calls of this, the then, and you forget. But when I get home still to this day, that 20% that I'm saying, oh, I could live fine. It still affects you, you know? And then I, then I remember like, oh yeah, like I still have this, like I'm crashing again. Like that was a hard day at work. My body needs to just watch TV for a couple of hours and be in bed. Now, Emily, while you're on this journey, were there any people, either people who are close to you or people who you were coming in contact with in a professional setting that caused you to doubt whether or not you had Lyme disease? More so as a teenager. Um, but, it, you know, there, there were very awkward moments where, uh, you know, you'd finally, like, the day would come. I was, like, you know, dating guys and stuff. And, like, I would come up in conversation. I'd build it up in my head. Like, oh, my God. Like, what if they think, like, you know, I'm making it up because of all the controversy? And sometimes it would happen. And uh, sometimes I would just go along with it because I didn't want to look like, you know, a complainer. Like, yeah, yeah, it's nothing. It's nothing. And kind of sort of try to convince myself to fit in, you know, or to keep that social status. Were there any people that were close to you and you had this very – it seems like your mother is a very powerful force in your life. Yes. But let's, let's separate your, your mother's role in this. Were there other people who were people you had intimate relationships with, whether they be teachers or other family members who caused you to doubt whether or not you had Lyme disease? Doubt it? Yeah. Did, did anybody engage in any behaviors with you that caused you to doubt in your mind whether or not you had Lyme disease? Doctors, yeah. Doctor, like, still, you know, maybe a new symptom would come and I'd want to just go to a specialist about it. And I was already diagnosed. I was already under treatment. Like, it was already a done deal. And, you know, then they would go back to, like, this is why you don't have it. Don't listen to them. And then I'd be like, oh, well, maybe he's right. And then I would realize, no, it's just, this is what's happening with this underground world, as I call it. <laughs> So, Emily, you've had a lot of different, you use a lot of different types of treatment protocols. And at one point you even stopped using antibiotics altogether. What caused you to do that? And were there forces either in your head where you uh, doubted whether you needed the treatment or whether it was working, or were there people outside of your own head that were discouraging you from believing that this treatment protocol was working? Yeah, I mean... I did at one point, just because it's lonely and you can't talk to anybody about this, like I did engulf myself in what I call like the Lyme disease community, which is like um, Facebook groups. And I actually went to Washington, D.C. and got to meet some of them at a rally one year. And I made some, you know, groups of friends online and I just saw them like going broke and doing all these like intense like experimental treatments. You know, they would go to Germany and they would, you know, do the... the 
the bee stings, you know, because the venom's supposed to help, and just all these controversial things, and they wouldn't get better, and they lost their house, and all these things that happened, and I just told myself, you know what, I'm becoming a believer that you're, it's never going to be 100%, and I'm okay with that. I've gotten used to being sick, you know, it, it sucks, because 80% sounds great, but trust me, guys, like, you know, it, it sucks sometimes, it really, like, I miss events, like, it sucks, but I'm okay with it. I'd rather live an 80% life than go broke and always feel like I'm chasing something better and being discouraged and doing havoc to my body, you know, because they are, they're drugs, the side effects of that too. It can make you infertile and it could cause, you know, all these things. I had to get my gallbladder removed from all the medication and, you know, all these other side effects that has happened. And I just told myself enough's enough. So Emily, were you concerned about taking on the identity of a sick person and yes. that preventing you from ultimately uh, continuing on your healing journey and living the life you wanted to live? Yeah, that, that actually, you hit the nail on the head there. That took effect too, you know. The minute I started, you know, meeting a boyfriend or getting a job or not wanting anybody to find out because of something substantial happening in my life at that time, I stopped taking my medication. I hit it even more. I just pretended like it didn't exist. So talk to us about the sick identity and the impact that that was having on your treatment. Meaning, did you stop treating because you didn't want to have this identity or did you stop treating because um, you didn't want other people to know that you were somebody who was dealing with these challenges? Can you repeat that? So sorry. Yeah. So I, I, I want to explore with you the, the, the sick identity that you did not want to assume. Why didn't you want to assume a sick identity? Did you not want to uh, assume the identity of somebody who was sick because you thought that would interfere with your ability to ultimately heal? Or did you not want to take on the identity of a sick person because you just didn't want to be someone with Lyme disease? You just wanted to be a normal person and you wanted to do the things that a normal person would customarily do, like have a boyfriend and have a job and those kinds yeah. of things. I think both. I, I didn't want anybody to know because I didn't want them to look at me differently. I wanted them to see Emily, not the sick girl. And, you know, you're at that awkward stage, 21, 22, where everybody just, you know, I don't know how to describe it, but, uh, but it matters. And I, I just wanted to be normal. I don't want to be judged. I don't want to scare people away, I guess, like, scare guys away, <laughs> if I must be blunt. Um, but then in addition to that, I feel like if it was any other disease, maybe I would have been a little more open about it. But I wasn't. And I was very secretive about it because I was afraid of that feedback that I would get of, ugh, like, Lung disease doesn't exist, or oh, that's it. Oh, that's nothing. You're fine, and you don't want to go. Well, you know, you're not fine. It's more than what you hear. You know, taking 30 days of antibiotics, like if it's late stage, and you just don't want to get into that because it just makes you feel insignificant. And there's been moments where I said it, and that's their reaction: is, "Ah, you're fine. Like, don't be so dramatic." And I would just go, "Yeah, you're right. Okay, you know, it's just." And it feels awkward. So I'm like, you know what? Let me just not tell anybody anything. Like, <laughs> I don't want to feel like I'm a crybaby just to get that um, feedback. So Emily, where is this coming from? Because it sounds to me that you were allowing sort of opponents to your, your successful treatment of your disease to interfere with the treatment of the disease. Is this something that was coming, you know, to you from your own mind? Or were there people in the world who were causing you to believe that if you were open about your disease, that, um, that you were not normal? It was people that if I was open about it, I was not normal, that I was a burden and that, you know, oh, it's nothing, you know, she's just a crybaby, which is something that is the opposite of what I want to have happen, which is why I'm, you know, I don't really talk about it or complain much anyway. So it's like my worst nightmare hearing that. But that was more about like being secretive about it. They, they didn't have an impact on why I stopped treatment so early. That was, that was more just because I, I still don't believe that there's ever going to be a 100% for those trying to achieve it. I, I don't mean to sound discouraging. I'm actually very positive with it. You know, I'm, I'm, I encourage people to get treatment and be your own health advocate and to be better. But the stuff that the drugs do to your body at a certain point, you know, you got to give your body a rest and see if maybe you can just, you know, if you're staying okay and you're stable, maybe just cope with, you know, the little bit that's left. I take, you know, a high, high dose of ibuprofen when I start feeling some pain, you know, or I, I treat the symptoms as is, but in, until I start, you know, spiraling and spiraling till I can't get out of bed till, you know, days on end, 
I think I'm okay without doing treatment. And that was my own, that was my own um, feedback to myself. I don't know if anybody influenced that necessarily. Right. So in your mind, Emily, you don't believe that you can get better or you can you cannot get back to being a hundred percent because you believe that the treatments that you're taking are only designed to kill that which is making you sick. What if you had a shift in your mindset and the shift in your mindset was, well, some of what I'm taking is actually building up my body. It's building up my immune system and it's actually making me healthier, not just attacking what's making me sick. You think that shift in mindset might cause you to believe that you could get better? You could get better than you are now? It could, yeah. And if we lived in a world where, you know, insurance was, you know, on Lyme disease side, for lack of better words, I probably would give it another try, you know, maybe a more safe way to replenish the body as I'm doing treatment. Um, but that's not the case. And because I'm, I'm hesitant, I, I don't want to put myself in a position where I'm eating bread sandwiches again, because that's what was happening. It's, you know, these Lyme literate doctors, they're wonderful, but you could lose your house over it, you know, and if I'm plateaued to a point where I'm okay until I'm not okay, I need to save money where I can. And it, it's sad. And it's, it's even sadder for the people that weren't, you know, having a successful business like me. I wasn't rich, but I, I was okay. And I hear about people that just don't have anything to begin with and they get sick and I can't even imagine. Um, so I'm not encouraging at all. I just, you know, money is a, is a topic of, I guess, you know, your point. So let's talk about, Emily, before we get to the end of the podcast, what you believe. Do you believe that you have the right to be healthy? And do you believe that there are resources available that could make you much more healthy than you are now? Yes, but I'm scared because I know those resources would mean me getting sicker before I'm better because I'm just familiar with that's what happens. It means it's working. And I'm not sure if I'm in a position right now to uh, not run my company, not be at work. Like the company would crash and burn without me is my fear. And unfortunately I'm putting the company before myself, but, uh, but at the same time, I'm growing a life for myself. You know, I, I met the man of my dreams and we're trying to buy a house together and we're doing all these things and we're going on vacation and we go on these adventures and, you know, I'm, I'm building my company and we grow every single day even more. And it's my dream to watch it grow. And, Maybe that's more important to me right now um, than getting 100%. But I'm not, I'm not saying to anybody listening, I'm not encouraging that, you know, get to the best of your abilities. And everybody's different. Maybe the medication would get you to 100%. You know, for me, maybe, maybe I just get to a point where I plateau. And, but everybody's different. Well, but maybe, maybe there's a false conflict in your mind. Maybe you can have the man of your dreams and you can have your house and you can have your business and you can have your health. And what I'm most anxious about during this portion of our conversation is you, you, you in your mind believe that you can't have your health and you can't have the life that you want, that there's some conflict between the two. And I'm going to ask you to think and pray on that a little bit more and think about perhaps maybe there are some other things other thoughts and other beliefs that you can have that would allow you to have all of what you want and not settle for a status or a, or a plateau in your health that yeah. isn't what it can be. No, you're right. I actually, yeah, I mean, I'm not going to dismiss that. I'm going to think about that for sure. Good. So, and, and let's, let's stay in touch so we can talk more about that and, uh, and make sure that, um, you know, that your, your beliefs are not limiting uh, your health. And, and, we, and we want you and everybody that listens to this podcast believe that your health is a basic human right. And you should be pursuing that basic, basic human right until you achieve the remission that you're, you're entitled to and have the life that you, you're, you're, you're dreaming of. So let's talk about the transformation that you've made because you have made great progress and you've, and you've become a very, very successful person that's even made her way onto, um, onto uh, you know, one of the top rated television programs in the country. So let's talk about the transformation and the beautiful things that have happened to you during the course of this journey. <laughs> um, I guess back to what I said earlier, it made me who I am. I, I don't know what came first necessarily as the business head that I just was born with, you know, I'm just a born entrepreneur or all these like emotional and physical um, compensations that I had to kind of create for myself, which kind of went hand in hand with, 
you know, starting a company. Um, it just made me kind of prove to everybody, I guess, that like, you know, I'm capable, even people that don't even know there's something wrong with me. It's just something like, uh, I don't know, psychological that I, I carry. And it makes me work 20 times harder just to prove to fictitious people that I'm okay. And to myself, I guess. And maybe I would have been like a crazy hard worker if this never happens, but I'm going to blame it on everything I went through. Um, Cause I think that is what happens. And that is a positive, you know, it's, uh, I just, I, I'm an overachiever. I, I compensate just to uh, do myself even better just to make up for the years that I couldn't do anything at all. So you're constantly proving to your, to your mind that is causing doubts that you're going to succeed and you're going to be resourceful and you're going to get to where you want to be. Correct. Correct. And, and one way of looking at this, of course, is that you are, forced to come up with resources that would allow you to be successful. But another way of looking at this I'd ask you to think about is that perhaps these are just doors that God is opening up for you so that you can bring a uh, successful product to a much larger audience than you would if you were the gal standing on the scaffolding and painting every single one of the murals that your company would be uh, producing. Correct. Wait, I'm sorry, can you repeat the question? Yeah, so I'm asking you to look at this a little bit differently, right? So part of, part of the blessing of this journey that I'm certainly witnessing during the course of you sharing this with us is that you've been able to scale your business, meaning your business is doing more than just producing one painting that you yourself would be producing, but you have now created this whole business model that's allowing many murals to be painted by many people um, in your business. Yeah, and... Again, that could have happened anyway. It's it's so hard to know, but I, I actually strongly, strongly believe that it was this, the overcompensation of, okay, how am I going to like fulfill all these orders coming in and I can't even get out of bed? Let me like be resourceful and figure it out to, you know, finding my uh, classmates and, you know, paying them a few hundred bucks to do the jobs for me to then looking back and saying, oh, they're doing a good job. Oh, this is a business model right there. So you take a negative with a positive and um, I don't know if I would have been able to structure the company in such a um, positive way um, or a successful way, I should say, if this never happened to me. And it has become so successful that you've even now been recognized nationally and you were invited to go on to Shark Tank. Can you talk to us about that experience? That experience was unforgettable and, you know, meant, even more to me than maybe somebody else just because you know you never think that that would happen to you i'm just the girl who got a ged and still to this day you know can't really read a book properly and never went to business school and barely knows what they're doing half the time <laughs> but uh you know worked hard and hard and hard and overcompensated a lot of obstacles and then got invited on shark tank and it just meant more than just being on tv uh it just went further back to you know telling myself like Whatever you did, you did right, and you're, you're going to be okay, you know? Um, and furthermore, it's, it's something that um, the business needed, you know? It was during the pandemic, and we were at the lows of the lows, and it aired just at that time, and it kept the whole company's morale up. And I was on the set in September, maybe seven months before it aired filming, and that experience was also unforgettable, you know, being on the Hollywood set and meeting them. And I grew up watching the show. I didn't miss one episode. So I'm a huge fan. And it was just, it was just, it was amazing. <laughs> I have nothing bad to say about it. So uh, now that you've had that experience, who is your favorite shark? Uh, Barbara Corcoran. A fellow New Yorker. Yes. <laughs> I was fortunate enough to uh, get to sit down and meet with her maybe about like three hours at her office. And She's such an inspiration and, you know, she went through some similar battles too. And it's just nice, you know, from another female entrepreneur to hear that you don't have to be textbook, you know, book smart and everything came so easy to you to be successful. You know, in this day and age, it's becoming more um, acceptable to, you know, do things a little differently and not by the books and still be, you know, okay and successful. Um, you know, I learned a lot of good things from it. It's, it changed me for sure. And, and I knew that, you know, because I watched the show so much, I knew that they were going to bring up, you know, my backstory and the Lyme disease and everything. And I don't talk about it to anybody. And I was losing sleep about the day we aired, not to like be on the set and see the sharks in real life. But it was that moment of like saying out loud, I have Lyme disease and knowing that 
friends are going to tune in and watch it that have no idea. It was just such a vulnerable thing and having no idea how the producers were going to edit that and <laughs> how the sharks are going to react to that. And it just, the minute I said it on the set, I was like shaking in my boots. If you heard my episode, my voice like went five octaves higher, <laughs> but, um, but then it was like a weight lifted off my shoulder. You know, it's like, good. The cat came out of the bag and maybe I could be an inspiration. And I got a lot of messages after that from people, um, from all over the world it's like can you please tell me what protocol works for you my daughter has Lyme disease I have it you're such an inspiration um so that was that was really nice to see too and has that now called you to now reach out and be a leader in the Lyme disease community so that you can help other people shorten their diagnostic and treatment journeys I want to help people and and that's why I did this podcast and I answer and I write emails you know do this and try this and call this person um I always respond to those emails but I wish I was a little less shy. I wish I could like, you know, go out there and really, really help people. But um, it's so hard for me still to talk about. I don't know why that is. Well, and you should also be inspired to do this because you're a part of the uh, uh, Pamela Weintraub tree now because <laughs> she took the time to help you and your family uh, through her interaction with your mom. And now you're paying it forward by doing things like mentioning your experience on Shark Tank and doing podcasts like this one. Thank you. So now let's give you one, I want to give you one more opportunity to bless all the people that you're going to be helping when they listen to this podcast by talking about what you'd recommend to folks in the event that someone they cared about came in contact with a tick. So if God forbid your mother came walking into your room while you were doing this podcast and she had a tick biting her on her arm, what, do you, what would you recommend to your mom that she would do so she wouldn't have to go on the terrible journey that you've had to go on? My advice, and not medical advice, just my advice from what I've learned and what I've seen is to just find a way to lie to the doctor, say, you know, oh, I can't shake this head cold to anything, to get a prescription for antibiotics, just 30 days, nothing bad will happen to you if you take it unnecessarily, but just take it as a preventative. You see a tick bite, don't wait until you get symptoms, because it might be years later, it might show up in different ways, and you don't even know. Um, or it might be too late and then you got to go through all this IV antibiotics. Just take a preventative course of, IV, of um, just oral antibiotics the same way you would for very mild early symptoms, just as a preventative. Thank you, everyone, for listening to the Tick Boot Camp interview with our guest, Emily Strauss. To our listeners, we have a call to action. First, if you'd like to learn more about Emily and her Lyme disease journey, please visit her Instagram page at MuralPainterInc. Second, if you enjoyed this episode of our Tick Bootcamp podcast, please share it with your friends by using the social media buttons you see at the bottom of the post. Third, we here at Tick Bootcamp have created a Tick Bite Blueprint that has been inspired by the information that has been shared with us by past podcast guests. We urge you to visit our website at www.tickbootcamp.com to view the blueprint. Please note we would appreciate any input you would like to offer us to improve the blueprint. Fourth, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Google Play Music, or Spotify to get our automatic episode updates of our Tick Bootcamp podcast. And finally, please take a minute to leave us a review on Instagram or iTunes or our website. Thank you for listening.